Welcome to The Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. My guest today is Dr. Spencer Clavin. Spencer Clavin, who you can tweet at Spencer Clavin, is host of the Young Heretics podcast, the, an associate editor of the Claremont Review of Books, and features editor for The American Mind. He's recently published his first book, How to Save the West, and is currently working on launching a new podcast with Daily Wire Plus. I met Spencer at ISI's American Politics and Government Summit this past February, and today it is my honor to welcome him to The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Spencer, welcome to the show. It's excellent to be here. Do I call you Mr. Curmudgeon? Is that how I should address you on the show? <laughs> oh, you're too kind. No, no, I'm just Josh. The uh, If there's a singular optimistic curmudgeon, it's our uh, my school's founder and the podcast sponsor, Mr. Bob Luddy. Uh, he is the ultimate optimistic curmudgeon. He's, if you ever get him, uh, in a non-public setting, he is very pessimistic about American politics hmm. and the economy and everything, but he also fervently believes that education is the way to fix the world. Uh, so he's dedicated the uh, the latter chapters of his life to figuring out how to build educational systems. So he is the optimistic curmudgeon. I'm, I'm just Josh. And uh, yeah. Oh, so, that's, I love that. But yes, okay. It's great to be here. Thank you, Josh, for, for having me. Of course. You. Uh, so um, I, I do have I have three ridiculous questions to ask you before we get into your book. Uh, turns out people on Twitter and Facebook, not LinkedIn, but at least Twitter and Facebook did have random questions to to pose to you. <laughs> so uh, the first one is from, a, I think, a mutual acquaintance, Soren Schwab with the classic learning test. Yeah. He wants to know how much can Spencer Clavin bench? <laughs> I love this from Soren. Of course, Soren would ask this question. Um, you know, a gentleman never never brags. And actually, right now, I'm I'm not at my strongest because those that lift will know you go through periods of sort of bulking and periods of trying to lean down. And I'm I'm leaning out a little bit at the moment. So um, I'm I, I'm hitting. I'm pretty solidly hitting two plates plus a twenty five. So let me do the really quick math here. Two plates is two hundred twenty five pounds right so plus 25 on the other side that's going to be 275 pounds i can i can make that no problem uh beyond that i don't usually lift with a spotter so i haven't uh, i haven't pushed further but I, someday i would like to get uh, three plates under my belt it's just not not the day for that all right excellent uh next question is from an old uh, fraternity brother of mine a guy named augie fackler Okay. Uh, he's a uh, programmer uh, with Google, at least last time I checked on what his job was. Nice. Uh, here's his question. Given that you are unrelated to your father, do mm. you wander around periodically asking things if they are your father, similar <laughs> to the bird in the classic children's book? <laughs> the funny thing about that book, which is one of the best kids book books around, is that he ends up asking like a uh it's I think it's like a crane or it's some kind of piece of heavy machinery, whether it's his mother, which is the most metal thing I've ever heard. Like he decides that he's the child of this enormous industrial monster. And that's basically my situation as well. My, my father is a Mack truck um, and he and I on Sundays go for long drives and uh, father son conversations. It's actually very sweet. Do you by any chance claim the uh, the steam shovel in uh, Mike Mulligan, the Mike Mulligan book? Is that is that also a relation of yours? Ah, yeah, distant cousin, I think. Uh, okay. it's always confusing with these family trees, but uh, somewhere oh. somewhere in the, in the uh, okay. And uh, this one from a, a seminary days friend of mine, Logan Smith, who uh, mm -hmm. now works with something in intelligence up in DC. Uh, he wants to know who is the better writer at Spencer Clavin or at Andrew Clavin? 
I'm contractually obligated not to answer that question. Uh, uh, my my youthful spirit wants wants to uh, rise up here, but actually, I should probably uh, say the truth of the matter. Of course, is that one always honors one's one's parents and one's forebears. And I mean, I I've been doing this for what like you know ten years or so now. He's been at it for way way longer because he's so old he's such an old man um but that what that means is he's definitely uh far ahead of me at least in, in that respect oh there's an excellent demonstration of pietas there yes, uh, which is piety. quite quite a quite appropriate for for our conversation today uh but before we get all the way back to uh socrates and plato and and all of their contemporaries um tell us a bit of your story uh, I'm really curious. I know you spent a few years at Oxford. And I'd love to know some of how you ended up there and what you intended to study when you got there, if that changed along the way. Uh, sure. How have you read so much? And just how many questions do you speak or read? <laughs> Boy, um, how have you read so much is a question that I think a lot of my uh, friends would be able to answer by saying, he never texts us back. He's always in his room reading things, talking to old dead guys. Um, but that's actually the, kind of the answer to your whole question. In my whole life, I've been surrounded by books and um, I, I've, I've been incredibly fortunate that way. I grew up in a house filled with books. My father, the Mack truck, um, was obviously a profound, passionate reader and, and writer. So was my mother. Um, and I, I guess I didn't realize that was weird for a long time. I, growing up, I, I think I, I had to learn that other kids didn't always uh, have that advantage, didn't have, you know, Plato and Homer and Machiavelli up on the shelves, you know. Um, and, and so when I, I realized that, it, it gradually became clear to me that what it meant to be surrounded by books was to be surrounded by friends. Because that's something we miss all the time it, out there in the world, of course, you know, studying Western civilization, studying old dead guys is maligned as some sort of evil project, fascistic, racist, superstitious, <laughs> backward thing. Um, but even within the academy, among those of us that, that love this stuff and know it to be great, um, you know, we can lapse into talking about it as if it were just an interesting word game. It's not. It's a community. It's a communion uh, of, of friends, of great minds. And, and a fellowship. Um, and so for that reason, you know, I, I have always just wanted more of that. I've always wanted to spend time in that uh, great good place of, of the halls of, of academia. And that's how I ended up at, at Oxford. I went to study classics. That is what I did. Um, I, I did a, a, a degree in Greek and Latin literature. And my PhD was on uh, the ancient Greek music theory to get really obscure for you for a moment. Um, but I think the way that I changed most as uh, as a thinker and as an academic in that context is I, I reached the limit of where I wanted to go in terms of professional academia that's aimed at uh, a community of scholars. It's just sort of shop talk, if you like. Um, there's a place for that. It's a valuable thing. I still read a lot of those journals from, uh, from that side of the world. Um, but because this has always been so personal for me, and because I really think that the great minds of the past have urgent things to say to us, guidance, help for us uh, in our very turbulent moment. And I, I started to realize that what I wanted to do was kind of turn outward uh, and, and write more publicly. And that's what I have been doing. That's why I wrote the book is to kind of offer people an inroad into this uh, communion uh, to give people just a little taste of, you know, what this wisdom can do for you. Um, and so that's you know, kind of how I ended up 
here was through a lifelong attachment to, to these great texts um, and through kind of a realization that what I wanted, the place that I wanted to occupy in, in the world was as a kind of, um, you know, a, a, a host, a welcomer that I could invite people in uh, to this to this wonderful field of study into this kind of rich source of, of knowledge. Um, how many languages do I read? or speak this is a always kind of an embarrassing question to answer um i think that the number is hovering around about 10 uh, but there's some of them in there that i definitely couldn't have a good conversation in but i can read very well in. this is one of the weird things about grad school is you learn to read certain languages really well um like german i'm, I'm pretty competent at reading german but i'm a terrible german speaker so uh, if that makes it any any better the number is 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 a 10. Well, I don't think that's anything to be embarrassed about or ashamed of. It's a remarkable accomplishment, and it's certainly one that uh, certainly uh, American culture, to speak very broadly, is very, mm. very bad at acquiring multiple languages. Every time I've traveled abroad, I'm just astounded. I'm on the one hand grateful that English is still the uh, international language of business because it means yeah. I can get around in most places. But I'm also pretty, pretty ashamed of the fact that I only speak English competently. I can make my way in Koine Greek if I have the different resources with me. But that's about it. Mm. But uh, one of the things I was most intrigued about at the uh, very beginning of your book, you had a caveat, a note on translation. I'm just going to read here to uh, follow up on this. When I cite works in languages other than English, I usually either write my own translations or combine various existing versions. For this reason, the endnotes give reference to the original works themselves rather than to any one English translation. But I've also relied on a range of excellent modern translations to guide and check my own, and readers can find my recommended editions in the bibliography. I found that so fascinating, uh, in part because I'm a, a devotee of Hans Georg Gadamer, and mm. he argues in uh, his book Truth and Method that really every translation is really time bound because every because language changes so frequently mm -hmm. that every generation needs a new voice uh, we're, we're not done with homer and oh my goodness <laughs> it is so painful to go back and read 20th century translations of homer or aristotle uh, they're free on the internet but they are free for a reason <laughs> <laughs> you get what you pay for right yes yeah wow. so, uh, i just so appreciated the the amount of scholarship that you demonstrated throughout your book and the way that those translations uh, sometimes books that are riddled with translations they're uh, that just contributes to a dry atmosphere to the book uh, yours didn't you brought forth this i had this very vivid sense of of uh socrates and Thrasymachus both discussing justice uh, like real people, in part because you translated mm. them both in such a vivid way. So I, I really appreciate the the work you put in because I'm even with your. I assume you have some initial aptitude for language, but it's still got to be work. Like none of that comes naturally. Oh, definitely, it's fun work. It's one of, one of my favorite things. There, there are a few subjects, and I'm sure you'll appreciate and relate to this. There are a few subjects which, if I if I didn't have any other responsibilities, and if the world weren't falling apart and if there weren't things to do um i would probably just devote my whole life to these kind of like minute obscure subjects for the sake of of themselves you know and one of them is is uh you know is verbs <laughs> just the, the, the sheer <laughs> variety uh, of possibilities for constructing time in in language um mm -hmm. and the different systems that exist especially in uh languages that don't have a lot of relationship to 
one another. I mean, this was one of my great joys in discovering Hebrew, that the Hebrew language has an entirely different way, not just of describing time, but of organizing time. There are different categories for fitting uh, events into, which makes it a very useful language, among other things, for talking about God, since God, of course, sort of thwarts and frustrates our own uh, thoughts about time and uh, often exists in a paradoxical relationship to time. Um, Hebrew is, is a language that has a lot of facility for expressing that. And this speaks to uh, what you were saying earlier about the need for new translations. You know, I, I wrote uh, back in my grad school days, I wrote a translation of the gospel of the gospel of the uh, Bible's book of uh, Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah from Hebrew. And the first thing that people would ask when I said I was doing that is, well, why don't we have other translations around? And it's exactly as you say, that because language changes over time and because indeed our circumstances change so that words have bear a slightly different relationship uh, to one another and to us, um, you need every now and then to go back to the source and to try as hard as possible. It's always never going to be fully possible to try to reconstruct uh, the context, the situation, um, and the urgency of what was being said. You know, the fact that this is not some tome meant to sit on a shelf, but a scroll to be, you know, pounded into walls and, and read aloud in public squares, you know, and, and to understand it in that way gives you, you know, this kind of face-to-face -face relationship with uh, the ancient works. It's an incredible privilege, kind of a miracle that we're able at all to do that. Um, and yeah, I think that, you know, especially when you're doing what I do in this book, which is draw uh, these characters into the modern day and try to, you know, in, in some sense, interview or interrogate them about what they might have to say on certain modern topics. Um, when you're doing that, they have to be real people for you. And, and so it requires uh, first and foremost, I think, um, a kind of encounter with the text. I had one professor in grad school who would just always say primary text, primary text, primary text, go back to the source. Don't read what some, you know, 20th century academic has to say about Antigone before you've reread Antigone, right? And, and really uh, try to encounter what Sophocles is saying direct. Um, and so, yeah, I, this is a, a reason why I really endorse the teaching of classical languages, why I think it's kind of a necessity if you want to get deep into this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I'm, I'm grateful that you kind of, that, that worked for you in, in oh. the book because it, it matters, I think, quite a bit. It, it did. And I'll, I'll just freely confess that uh, languages are not something I put nearly enough work into. So I'm grateful that you have and that I can benefit from your work in translation. Well, let's uh, let's get into your book a little bit. Um, tell us the origin story of this book. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there had to be some tipping point moment where you decided you were going to tell everyone else how to save the West. Uh, what, <laughs> what was that moment? How did you decide I have to write this book? I know what what possessed you would be another way of asking that question, I guess. Um, and it is a sort of a funny thing to write a book at all, especially one with such an ambitious, audacious title. Um, but anyone who writes a book, yeah, has to basically get up on his soapbox, stand in the public square and bang a drum, essentially um, say, I have something to say. And um, there was a, a turning point, although it was it was more gradual, maybe than a kind of thunderbolt lightning moment. Um, what happened was I started this podcast, Young Heretics, which uh, you and I have discussed. You, you know that show. Um, and it's basically just a, an offering of uh, some great texts from the Western canon. I called it the classical education you didn't know you were missing. And so listeners would uh, come on every week and I would say, you know, here's Dante or here's, uh, you know, the here's the Republic. Here's Homer, whatever. Um, and let's just sort of talk through 
in layman's terms, but with real engagement with the text. Let's talk through what this book's about. Why why anybody took the time to put pen to paper or uh, you know quill to to parchment or whatever on this particular subject, um, and why did they feel that they had something to tell you about how to be excellent at being human? You know. Um, this, I thought, was a totally niche endeavor that uh, would be listened to by about five people. I was like, this is going to be a side project. It's going to be a lark. I'll have a great time. Uh, and then people will, you know, the, the five people that like this sort of stuff will, will listen. And um, that is not what happened because it turned out there is an enormous hunger out there for things of substance, material of substance, ideas, thoughts of substance. Um, and I think there's a reason for that. It, you know, the digital age has come with all sorts of benefits and also all sorts of very obvious drawbacks. And one of the drawbacks is that we are constantly inundated with gunk, with just verbal gunk uh, that doesn't actually bear any relationship to reality or is designed to kind of seduce us away from reality. I'm talking about most of the stuff we get in the news every day. Um, but I'm also talking about, you know, the marketing emails that constantly flood into our inbox, just language with no real weight or heft behind it. Um, and when you start to feed people rich food instead, when you start to offer words that actually refer, bear relation to reality, um, it turns out people show up um, because they really need that stuff. And I, I was getting so, so many uh, notes from people saying, I didn't realize that I, that I needed this in my life. And that's when I started to realize like, okay, so there's actually a hunger out there uh, that, that people have. Um, and, and this is something that I delight to offer. Like this is actually uh, something I've spent my whole life on. Um, this, you know, the, the great texts of the West, the languages that we've been talking about, this is what specialists are supposed to do. They're supposed to go away, you know, gain a, a, an aptitude in some obscure subject and then bring those, the fruits of that teaching into the world. Um, and so that's kind of, you know, the, the book was born out of an encounter with that hunger and it's an attempt to uh, not only to feed that hunger and to serve that need for real substantive engagement, thought that goes deeper than the news cycle, um, but also to uh, invite people into a whole world of riches uh, in that score, to invite people to a feast beyond the book and let them know that they do have ownership over this stuff. It's not beyond them. It's not above uh, the sort of understanding of the average person. In fact, the average person can really benefit from it. Um, so it's the book is itself an offering, but it's also kind of a signpost, uh, if you like, to get people into some of the things that they can be reading uh, that will help them more than whatever Don Lemon says tomorrow about <laughs> nonsense. <laughs> I know you went into this on some detail on the uh, CLT podcast, but I remember you describing that your goal was to equip the average person to be mm -hmm. able to get into the text. And I love that so much because I think the the world of classics or and classical education often gets this bad rap as being elitist, white supremacist, whatever. And that's really not true because it really is the foundation of these texts that enable an understanding of all human beings as rational, all human beings as possessed of a soul, and the, the foundations of all humans being having this dignity and then being able to reach back to those sources to see how Wisdom is not something we just woke up last year and decided, hey, we need some of that. Uh, actually, wisdom is something that all of humanity has been seeking. And I think your book does a great job of showing how uh, we don't have to start over from scratch. We don't right. have to come up with these answers as if we're the first human beings to ever ask, what exactly does it mean to say something is real? Why do we <laughs> yeah. have these weird bodies? Why are they so funky sometimes? And why do we want more than just what the body can give? I, that, these are perennial questions. 
I love how you take us to those. Um, I don't know if you would agree with this, but uh, I, I somehow, for some reason, I mentally classify you with Matt Walsh in this way. Not just that you're both connected with the Daily Wire now, huh. but I think you're both um, non-ordained, non-technically non-theologically oriented preachers in a way. Huh. But uh, when I when I listen to Matt Walsh's show, he has like the first 10 minute segment of every episode is basically a mini sermon that's not tied to a passage of scripture. But mm -hmm. he is didactically preaching to an audience. And there were passages in your book where you sort of you break from analysis. It's as if the analysis has built to the point that you can now tell the audience exactly what you want to do. And uh, I, I, I don't know if this is just your writing style or if this is podcast influenced or if it's intentional or maybe all three. But you shift to from third person to second person and you directly speak to me, the reader. Mm. You need to draw these conclusions about the body, about religion, about about science. You need to actively engage this based on the things that have come previously in the chapter. Mm. And I, I think it, it strikes that same sort of you, you're very clear about this is not just an ephemeral academic argument. Yeah, this actually matters. And you, as the author, really believe that my life will be better if I agree with you about certain things or mm. at least engage with the ideas that you presented and that it will consequently be worse if I ignore that. Hmm. That strikes me as a sort of odd. It's not it's not connected to a church. It's not connected to an institution, but it's a preaching kind of idea that like this matters and you have to believe me. And I, it does have direct application. That is a really astute, interesting uh, observation. Thank you for that. Um, it, as for my association with the Daily Wire and, and Matt, I think it might just be the beard you're noticing. We have very similar beards. No, um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, I, I, um, I wouldn't want to speak for Matt, so I'll speak for myself and say that I definitely do have an evangelist uh, mindset, if you like. But as you indicate, it's not of a traditional cast in, in in at least some ways um in in the book what i say is look i belong to a certain church right i have a certain set of creedal beliefs um and i think it would be better to appear on screen for just a moment and she's gone anyway oh, please continue. <laughs> so nice to see you um the, thanks for the visit the um no the you know I, I i would like it if everybody alive tomorrow believed every word of the Nicene Creed. I think that would be a good thing. I think it would make everybody happier. At the same time, I don't think uh, that <laughs> that's the kind of conversation we're currently having in the West, because I don't think people are at the place yet where they're even asking the sorts of questions that the Nicene Creed answers. Um, they're not asking, you know, was the was the Virgin Mary really a virgin when she gave birth? Or, you know, does God have three persons or one? Um, they're asking things like you indicated. Is there absolute truth? Very basic first level questions, because sadly, we've been forced back to that level as, as a society and civilization. Um, and yes, I think that when you start asking those questions, your answer actually matters. It's not just word games. Um, and the reason that I do so much direct address in this book, which is not my usual style, actually, it's it's not something that, you know, I, I, I do in every book or will do all the time. But for this book, it, it really fit um, because, yeah, it's it's born out of that podcasting relationship. And it's born out of my sense that people are hurting because they're telling themselves things that don't make any sense. Um, and so whereas, you know, I again, I'm happy to evangelize people at, at, a, at a more sort of obviously uh, ecclesial level, I think in some sense, the most important work of 
evangelism right now um, has to do with first order, first principle questions. Mm. It has to do with the stuff that people are genuinely wrestling with, genuinely hungry to know the answer for, um, and that will ultimately lead to God. That's one of the arguments in the book, a sort of sustained argument throughout the book, is that all of these questions, all of these answers are pointing you toward the necessity of something, someone outside the material world. Um, and if you don't believe in that, all these, as you say, nasty consequences are going to follow. And if you do, your life is going to fall into place. Um, and, and yeah, like, am I like, <laughs> is that a sort of ninja evangelism? Like, am I being disingenuous? I, I don't think so. Like, I think that I, this is, this is evangelism. I mean, this is the kind of reason that uh, we're so hungry, thirsty for God at the moment is because we've lost sight of these basic truths. Um, and in reality, you don't actually have to go questing in some sort of like obscure uh, remote region of the wilderness to go looking for God. Like he's already closer to you than your own skin. And every question that you ask, everything that you might wonder about is ultimately going to point you back to him uh, if you take it seriously, if you believe that there are right and wrong answers. And, and that's really, that is what I believe. Now, you, you just described so eloquently the uh, sense I've had for a decade in classical education that uh, on the one hand, I am always trying to point students to ultimate reality. Mm -hmm. And I want to use the tools of literature and philosophy and history and logic and debate to force students to have that ultimately real encounter. But that ultimately real encounter is not value neutral, and it ultimately does have a name. Uh, to, right. to riff on Aquinas, uh, it's that which all men call God. <laughs> it's, exactly. It's really, and that, yeah. uh, so in that sense, even as I, I work in a, a secular arm of classical education, um, we have I have all kinds. I have lots of coworkers who do not share my convictions or beliefs, but we have common interest in literature or language or philosophy and so on. But I, I go to work every day hoping to have conversations that point students to the importance of asking these questions and the fact that there are answers and mm. that answers can be found. And so much of uh, people in the K-12 education space have lost sight of the fact that there are answers mm -hmm. and that it's not just that we are seeking to ask. We want students to ask questions and then we step back and say, whatever answer you find is good. We're now at this moment in time where it's self-evidently true that that's that's false. <laughs> there yeah. are terrible answers out there. We can wreck our lives in so many ways. Mm. Uh, and the thing about that, I'll just say, is not only are there truer and falser answers to these ultimate questions, um, there are answers which are already implied in everything that you do. And people have an amazing ability, uh, drilled into them in part by our disingenuous ruling class, um, to say things in philosophy class that have no relationship to how they actually live their lives. So, I mean, relativism is the, the canonical classic example of this, that people will say, there's no such thing as good or bad, I just, just thinking makes it so, you know, your truth, my truth, all cultures are valid. Um, and then it'll be like, well, I'm, but I'm fighting for social justice because of the evils of America. It's like, oh, so American culture is not a relativistic question because you seem to hate that, right? And so there's, so there's that level of, of things. But, but even deeper than that, I think, you know, the denial of God, the denial of absolute truth, the denial of ultimate purpose outside of the physical world um, is belied every time you wake up in the morning and get out of bed and drink a cup of coffee. Because the, why did you do that? I mean, presumably because you think there's some good that you have in mind, even if it's just like getting paid at the end of the day so that you can go on vacation, right? That means you think vacation is good. Why do you think it's good, right? And why do you think, for instance, that like you shouldn't murder people in cold blood, right? Um, and so every 
breath that we take, everything that we do is teleological. It has an inherent purpose, an inherent aim. It, that implies there is a highest aim somewhere. There's somewhere where that chain of why questions ends. And when it does, you are going to be confronted, perhaps unbeknownst to you, with what actually is serving as your god. Um, it might not be something you you would like to claim as a god. It might be politics. It might be power. It might be you know sexual pleasure. People chase after all of these things um, and they put them in the position of highest good uh, and that trickles down into every decision they make every action that they take this is why the bible says the fool hath said in his heart there is no god it's not because atheists are uniquely stupid like we're all basically about as stupid as everybody else but what the text really means is if you tell yourself you don't have a god if you say you're not worshiping anything, you are fooling yourself. It's a kind of self-deception because then you become blind to the actual forces that are moving and at work in your life. The argument in the book is, okay, so let's just be honest and self-aware about the fact that we are worshiping creatures because that enables us to ask the really important question, which is what deserves to be in that position? Mm -hmm. What deserves my worship and allegiance and my ultimate uh, final sacrifice? What deserves for me to bend the knee? And what can I worship that will set me free rather than making me a slave? Uh, that's the only real question that humanity is capable of asking in a serious and sober way. It's not like, is there anything beyond? There, the, everything we do implies that there is something beyond, something we worship, something we serve. The only meaningful question is what or whom do you serve? And once you start asking that question, even if you've got the wrong answer to begin with, you're at least on the right track. You're cooking with gas at that point, because really that's, that's where all the money is. That's such a great set of observations. I'll only add in, uh, my wife and I just got back from a vacation at uh, Lake Tahoe in, uh, in Nevada. Mm. I'm sorry. I was instructed by those who live there that it's pronounced Nevada, and I'm going to try to, to, nice. to follow that. Uh, but Lake Tahoe is breathtakingly beautiful. And every morning we woke up, our we had a, a room with a view going out over the mountains. And I was just, and of course, it's, it's April and when we're recording, and it's spring. It's very much spring here, verging on summer in North Carolina. But mm. in in Nevada, it is still uh, it's still winter, and mm. they have more snow this year than any other year. I was just blown away at the breathtaking beauty that we were surrounded by, and it's beauty that humans can fit into. It's that we can adapt. We can certainly cut roads through these mountains that allow me to rent a car and drive up the mountain without destroying that beauty, but we cannot create that level of beauty. I mean, there is something far beyond human capacity in the harmony of this beautiful blue lake, these white-capped mountains, the fog that bridges them, and green pines that somehow stretch across all four of those pieces, and it was just amazing. Mm. I would add there that I, if you can sit in that kind of beauty and look around yourself and think, Oh my, look what evolution has done. <laughs> you are honestly just missing the, the, the reality that has presented itself before you. Um, Spencer, let's back up just a bit because uh, I, I do want to, I do want to, I hope listeners have a sense of the structure of your book by the end of our conversation. Mm -hmm. And I know there's no way we can talk about everything in your book. Uh, one of the things that so amazed me was that your book was a single volume uh compilation of all the things I have tried to convince new teachers they need to understand in order to be effective classical educators. There you go. So there's no way we can talk about all of those today. Uh, but I, I hope people listen to this and think, oh my goodness, I need to go buy a copy of How to Save the West. So hopefully <laughs> they'll do that. Uh, but you organize this around a series of crises that link together very clearly and build upon each other. I want to go back to uh, the first of those. Uh, and, and really just uh, quickly give you a chance to establish your methodology. 
Mm -hmm. uh, you tied this to the reality crisis. Uh, so why analyze Facebook's metaverse through Plato's allegory of the cave? And you, right. you do this not just here, but really throughout. You take obvious contemporary problems that are bigger than just like a one day or a one week news cycle. These are problems that have been with us for a few years and probably won't end anytime soon. But you keep going back to the classics. Why go back to the classics to uh, to address contemporary problems? Absolutely. Uh, this is a great question, and it's sort of the motivating question of the book, if you like. It's the, th the first thing that somebody might ask is, like, what's the point of all these old dead guys? What, is, you know, what do they have to say uh, to our modern issues, which are so modern, which have to do with digital technology and transformation? Um, let me begin by saying what I mean by the word crisis. And I think that will help people to get a sense of why I wrote the book the way I did. Um, it's the most overused word in news, practically, right? We have a crisis of the supply chain. We have a crisis. In, COVID's a crisis. There's a crisis uh, <coughs> abroad, whatever. Um, and, and those might all be very bad things and difficult things to deal with. Um, but when I use the word crisis, I'm using it to harken back to its Greek meaning. It comes from the Greek language and it comes from the verb krino, I judge or I decide. Um, and so a crisis is a time for choosing. It's a, it's a decision point uh, when you have to pick between two fundamentally irreconcilable ways of looking at the world. And that's what I'm talking about in these five crises. I'm arguing that even though a lot of the tech that we're dealing with is new, a lot of the events that we're dealing with are, feel unprecedented, um, they are actually throwing us back on these first order questions. Uh, questions like, is there such a thing as absolute truth? Um, and those questions are presenting us with, with crises, with, with the necessity of choosing a good answer rather than a bad answer to those questions which are under the surface. The good news is these questions, these eternal perennial questions have been around for as long as people have been thinking. And that means we're not alone. We have a whole company of witnesses. We don't have to rely on whatever like modern guru comes up with some cockamamie theory tomorrow. We don't have to listen to the WEF or the CDC or Dr. Fauci to pronounce from on high the grand truths of all things. Um, we can actually talk to smart people from the past who have thought about these things, wrestled out good answers, answers that still remain uh, the best ones on offer. Some of the sanest, uh, most thoughtful approaches to these kinds of questions are in these uh, books, in, in the classics of the Western canon, Athens and Jerusalem. And so that's where we ought to look when we're dealing with first order crisis level questions. Um, so the book is organized into five of those crises. And as you say, the first one is the crisis of reality, which we've already talked about. Is there such a thing as true or false or not? Um, and it turns out that once you recognize this as a crisis, as a longstanding fundamental question in Western history, um, you realize that it didn't originate with like bad orange man and supposed uh, fake news, right? And all the times that Trump's hype men said something that wasn't true. Um, this is actually a much, much deeper thing, even in our politics. If you remember Bill Clinton saying, it depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. Um, that's somebody that fundamentally believes he can so manipulate language and narrative that he can change people's understanding of, of reality. That's basically what our news media is in the business of doing 24-7 at the moment. And so the notion that suddenly we had a post-truth politics when Donald Trump was elected, it's like, you sweet summer child, you know, like, I have I have some news for you. This goes back to Nietzsche and the death of God. Like, uh, and before that, it goes back to Socrates, right? Um, because in fact, you know, we uh, in the West who live in the West, 
um, are so spoiled that we think, oh, it's just normal and natural to believe all these things. Like they're such, yes, virtue, justice, goodness, like these things will just come to us naturally. They don't actually. Uh, they're not normal. They're, they're not even really natural in the sense of being born into the human mind already fully formed. Um, they have to be argued for. And Socrates uh, famously presented one of the best cases for um, the knowability of some eternal truths. I should say Plato's Socrates, of course, as represented to us uh, in, in the Platonic dialogues. We have this encounter between Socrates and an entire culture, which much like ours, is finding it very fashionable and convenient to suggest that really justice is just in the interest of the stronger. Um, if I tell you that a man is a woman, that's what I, you know, that's the truth. That's reality. Um, and, and, you know, you can see a lot of kind of parallels between our time and, and the time of the ancient Athenians, the fifth century BC, when Socrates was sort of uh, coming to, uh, to, to flourish. And so one thing that we learn from this, uh, that we can sort of see from Socrates' uh, engagement with what Plato called the sophists, um, is that actually uh, truth is a very precious thing. Seeking it, believing it can be found is a very precious thing. Um, and it's very inconvenient to powerful people. That's why they had him killed, right? And, and you know, we in the West, again, in many cases, spoiled into thinking that, you know, these things are just going to take along naturally, are now starting to realize that actually there's a serious risk um, to, to acknowledging and recognizing reality. Uh, you may well offend p powerful people. You may lose opportunities and, and things that you had, had wanted. Um, and, and so we have to put our hope in something other than our professional or personal success. Um, there's actually got to be some reason to believe in reality, to believe in truth, irrespective of of whether you know political powers and and powers that be uh should should like it uh irrespective of whether twitter says you can or can't say something online um you still have to say it you have to actually be forthright and honest because the truth matters in and of itself and reality is actually our home um these are the sorts of things that we can gain conviction about by studying it, ancient texts rather than simply going off whatever like Mark Zuckerberg says tomorrow about the metaphors. Like that just seems like an obvious better sell to talk to Socrates about it. Oh, I think Socrates is definitely a better interlocutor for us than Mark Zuckerberg. That is definitely true. I mean, I did love your, uh, your shout out to uh, debate coaches in here. You pointed out that uh, <laughs> in ancient Athens, there were lots of debate coaches putting out their shingle for advertisement <laughs> to uh, teach you how to convince other people to uh, that you are correct. Uh, one of my other hats is running a debate network for Thales Academy, and and you are absolutely right. I mean, there's there's a there's a there's this temptation in debate where I I think I I, I at least continually remind myself that like training in sophistry is a danger mm. in any kind of rhetorical skill because in as much for as far as much as I agree with Aristotle that rhetoric is. Uh, truly, the it's, it's the art of right persuasion towards the good. Mm. Uh, there's also the ability to dress that up that is always tempting to fallen humanity, that we would be tempted to uh, be able to use rhetoric to gain power. Uh, and I, I at least think of debate as a, I, I hope that my students get really, really good at persuading other people, but that they, I, I always fight to try and remind them that arguing true arguing truly matters more than getting the victory. And I hope that that's what, uh, that's what sticks. Um, I want to jump over to the, the body crisis. Uh, mm. Really intrigued by the way you handled this one. Um, in part, because uh, you, you did not take, I, I expected a whole chapter on why transgenderism is, is wrong and bad and dumb. And, and that's not what you did. You, you mm. instead walked us through 
and a very interesting argument about the soul and the body. Uh, so I'd love for you to just uh, comment for a moment about the crisis of the body. And then uh, if you could help us with uh, to what extent is modern transgenderism an application of ancient Gnosticism? Yeah, well, it's interesting because I do think that people are being sold a bill of goods with this transgenderism stuff. And some of it has gotten genuinely dark and evil, um, as philosophical errors tend to do when chased to their conclusions. Aquinas famously quotes Aristotle as and says, you know, a small error in the beginning leads to a big error in, in the end. So it's not that I don't uh, recognize the gravity of the transgender, what I would call the transgender craze. Um, it's that I think it's, it's a symptom, not a cause, uh, that it's arising out of a deeper discomfort with the human body altogether um, that taps into some very ancient problems and, uh, and philosophical mistakes. First and foremost, among them, the idea that we're basically the real us is some kind of abstract floaty entity, some divine spark outside of our bodies. And this flesh is just a kind of accident or an imposition or a mistake. Um, and it's not just uh, transgender extremists that you find making that argument. It's also transhumanists um, who think that our future lies in a sort of techno uh, emerge with technology to become sort of cyborgs or uh, to become mere lines of code running through a digital paradise. And, you know, I, I'm not a... a um, a technological Luddite. I don't think all of this tech is is bad, but I think it does reveal our philosophical attitudes, the way that we use our tech, the way that we propose to use tech uh, in the future, um, says something about what our elites think. And one thing they seem to think is that the human body is a kind of outdated machine uh, in need of an update, uh, that we we ought to just get rid of it. Um, it's it's primitive. It comes out of monkeys, you know, and, and basically it's just the accident of our biology that we happen to have this thing called a consciousness. Um, and now that consciousness can be lifted out and just like operated in some kind of vague, abstract technosphere. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the same idea that would tell you, yeah, you're a you're born into the wrong body. Um, you know, and, and, and again, it's like, you know, it, it, it's not really my concern to harangue uh, individuals who suffer from gender dysphoria. It sounds like a very painful and difficult situation to be in. Um, but I will stand all day and rain, you know, verbal fire and brimstone down upon those who tell children that when they have those feelings and those uh, difficulties, uh, they're having them because what they are is a sort of ghost in this flesh machine that needs to be torn apart and reconfigured at will ad nauseum whenever you feel different uh, you just transition into something else right and um, that is making people sick miserable uh and and ultimately leading to some very dark places and and, and i think it's it's profoundly irresponsible to do bad philosophy about the body like it just really leads people um into terrible errors um and into terrible depression and and angst um, and we're seeing that all over the world at the moment, especially in the West and in America. Um, and it roots in this very ancient problem of, you know, the, the mind-body duality. Um, this is why I argue in the book that one of the most urgent philosophical concepts to recover uh, for us is what is called hylomorphism. Uh, it's a Greek fusion of two Greek words, hule, uh, stuff, matter, material, and morphe, form uh, or, or shape. Um, Everything in the world, but especially a human being, is 
a hylomorphic entity. We are not just flesh, but we're also not just our uh, ideas or our thoughts. We are body and soul entwined in one. The body is not a mistake. Uh, the soul is not an illusion. The body is the language in which the soul is expressed. And once you understand that, again, you can approach these issues in a sane and healthy way. It doesn't mean that you're going to agree with me 100% on every point about what everybody should do uh, with their with their bodies, but at least you'll be talking about the fullness of what we are, um, because leaving either part of us aside, the body or the soul, um, turns us into kind of satanic caricatures of ourselves in our own mind. Um, and the, the, the salvation from this lies in an understanding um, that we are irrevocably always and, and in a good way, both at once. We are the rational animal. We are the fusion of, of matter and spirit. Um, that gives us a unique position really in, uh, in the world because we are rational and self-aware. Um, but it's also just a beautiful and good thing to be. And I think the chapter on this ends in the book with like, you know, you can live in that world. You might like it actually. Um, and that's kind of where I, where I think we, we need to be going as uh, educators, as people that talk about this stuff, is to encourage people to delight in uh, their nature as embodied souls, because it's just better than the other stuff that's on offer. I think you're absolutely right. And I think you, you do such a great job in that chapter of sounding a positive note and mm -hmm. really trying to not just explain what's so bad about this uh, trans transhumanist approach in all its different versions, really how positive we ought to be, how, how, how much we ought to celebrate the, the goodness of the body. Mm -hmm. um, uh, on that note, I'll just mention, uh, in case any of our listeners are intrigued, uh, three authors who are very good on this topic, two contemporaries, one a little less so. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Abigail Favale's book, The Genesis of Gender. Mm -hmm. uh, she's actually coming on the show in, uh, in about a month, and uh, we're going to talk about that book. Uh, so listeners, by the time this one drops, uh, do be on the lookout for Abigail Favale's episode. Uh, she does what I think is the best Christian approach to discussing gender that's hit the market yet. Mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're, we've been kind of behind the ball as, as Christian thinkers for probably, I would say, 70 to 80 years in thinking about gender and the body. And Abigail Favale is, gives a great description of kind of how does a Christian view of gender work and how, how does that, how does, how do we see gender as part of God's gift of creation? Uh, another recent author who touches on this alongside a bunch of other issues is Mary Harrington mm -hmm. in her book, Feminism Against Progress, where she looks at, she's, she's part of a group of people, uh, both male and female, who are trying to articulate a, uh, different kind of feminism. Harrington calls it reactionary feminism. Some others call it sex realist feminism. Uh, but she's trying to articulate a feminism that celebrates the female body and doesn't see the female body as itself the enemy to be medically or surgically overcome. And so she, she does a great job in that book of really articulating her own transition from a a sort of a rabidly feminist youth who saw everything about life as flexible and shapeable according to her desire to growing up, maturing, giving birth to a child and suddenly realizing that life is way more complex and there is way more, there are more parts of being a woman that she simply didn't know until she had gone through those processes. Um, last one I'll mention, uh, then we'll, we'll move on is uh, John Paul II and his book, um, uh, A Theology of the Body. I'm sorry, male and female, he created them, A Theology of the Body. Uh, JP2 is, uh, he is the most consistent philosophical thinker on, on issues of the body from a traditional perspective. Uh, and I'll freely confess, I've read the other two. I have only read portions of Theology of the Body. Uh, but 
listeners, if any of you are intrigued, I think that those would be some great additional avenues to uh, to read in this area. Um, Spencer, you also mentioned uh, just the, or as you were describing that, it reminded me of that. I think there's a huge responsibility here that both educators and particularly parents have uh, for any children or teenagers specifically who struggle with gender dysphoria. Uh, there's a there's a great temptation to uh, sort of lean into the dysphoria and to tell children that they are right to feel that way. That's the transgender advocacy route. But I think what actually that that reveals is the much greater need to help students feel integrated into their body and realize that even if you have those feelings, those feelings are wrong. Mm -hmm. And that the goal is not to just simply affirm those feelings, but rather to help students recognize those feelings as wrong and to replace them with the right feelings. Mm. That's a complex issue. That's a complex uh, expectation that we can't really get into on the show. But I think it's the same kind of thing that we have when kids don't want to do their chores. They don't feel like wearing clothes in public. Uh, they don't feel like getting in the car when it's time to go home from the beach. Uh, they feel terrified of the dark. And even if, as parents, we might tell give kids a nightlight, we don't expect that nightlight to stay with them for the rest of their lives. Mm. We don't leave them at the beach because they don't want to go home. Uh, mm -hmm. Instead, we have the responsibility as the mature adults to know what is right for students and children to desire and to help them eventually perceive that. And that's a long, convoluted process, but I think that's part of our responsibility as adults. Absolutely. Well, it's a foundational aspect of being human altogether, isn't it? You know, the, to understand that the, the first thing that pops into your head is not always the truest or, or most correct thing. And that we have all sorts of thoughts and feelings that we know we need to resist. Everybody admits this in principle. Nobody would actually argue just like do do whatever your heart tells you. We say that as a kind of slogan. But then, you know, if somebody said like, oh, well, my, my heart actually told me to like slaughter this puppy in cold blood like you get a lot of nasty comments on the internet being like that's that sort of selfish and violent and destructive thing to do and you know being having gender dysphoria is not the same as wanting to slaughter a puppy in cold blood but both have this in, in common which is that like they they are relationships to uh you, they, they are at least partial and certainly ultimately false ideas about your self and your in your body and yeah, it's everybody's responsibility to uh, understand and to talk to one another about the fact that, you know, it, it's it sounds we can sound conservative can sound kind of scoldy and nasty on this topic to those outside of our spheres. I know that, you know, we're often portrayed that way. Um, but when you say that a feeling is is wrong, you literally just mean it's incorrect. Like it's a, it's a false you've got a false understanding about what's going on here. Um, it's not a, a correct assessment of of reality. Um, and people are now being sold a whole philosophy that endorses a kind of cockamamie and obviously untrue idea about reality that by sheer force of language, we can turn a man into a woman, right? Um, we know that this this doesn't work. This isn't true. Um, and so, of course, when people who are having like difficulty uh, sitting in their own skin, essentially, um, as we all have in some way or, or another, um, and then they're told that like that is the right pointer toward the truth, toward reality. Yeah, it's going to mess with with people's heads. We, uh, what we're really just trying to do, I think, is coach people uh, into a, a fuller and healthier way of understanding uh, the truth and their the relationship of their feelings to the truth. We, uh, that's the whole project of virtue is to, you know, to understand that not everything you feel necessarily points you toward some good. Um, and your feelings, your, your loves, your desires are designed to be oriented and shaped toward the good. Um, and so seeking the good is actually your task. It's not like 
reifying and affirming every thought that pops into your head. Like what a crazy thing to even imagine as a, as a parent that your job would be to affirm constantly everything your, your child says. Like we know, everybody knows that's not the right thing to do. And the people that are telling us to do it uh, are, are selling us a bill of goods. They're not there to help us. They're there to use us. Which puts, takes us back to your, your explanation of that term crisis, that there's, mm. there's a demand for judgment there. There's a demand for reason to examine the sides and to make a, make a choice. Mm. Um, I want to shift to a different topic, uh, kind of closer towards the end of your book. Um, I don't know if this really ties in, but it somehow seems significant to me that we're recording on Maundy Thursday mm -hmm. uh, in 2023. Uh, that's, of course, the day in Holy Week where Jesus uh, gave the new commandment to his disciples. This command I give to you, love one another. Um, you argue in your book that we need a certain kind of love to have a healthy regime, that we need a there's a right kind of political love within our, our, our polis or our nation in this case. Um, at the same time. Uh, this week, we've had a bit of a new shock to our regime. Yeah. President Trump has been indicted and I think arrested. And uh, I ex and the political theater is ramping up. Uh, that, that, that much is certain. Um, so in what sense, could you walk us through what you mean by this phrase regime crisis? And what does a rightly ordered political love in a rightly structured regime look like? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I want to be very careful here because I'm, I'm in no way comparing Donald Trump to Jesus. Um, I try very hard not to do that. But right. I, I do think that the world, um, that the, the universe follows the liturgical calendar, not just the church, that the, actually the church is describing a structure of reality through its liturgical rituals. Um, and often it seems as if it during Lent, things get gloomy. Um, and I have been feeling gloomy about the state of our politics lately. I will tell you that much. That is for sure. Um, and, and it particularly been acute the last couple of, of weeks. And so I'm not going to like read the tea leaves and be like, it's all going to get better at Easter or, or whatever. Um, but I do think that we are being uh, forced to reckon with some of our deepest dysfunction. Um, and so when I talk about regime crisis, I am talking about a failure to understand or endorse or care about um, the fundamentals about what America is designed to be. I make the argument in the book that we are designed as a republic in the in a classical sense, which is to say, uh, you know, a multi-part regime which balances powers against one another as a way of staving off uh, regime decay, staving off the collapse of, of the republic uh, or, or of any sort of uh, political unity. Um, and, and these forms of, of rule uh, were well known in antiquity, right? Rule by one, rule by a few, and rule by many. We balance them against one another in this country, and we do so because we believe uh, that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Um, and that conviction comes to us from the other side of the West. It comes scripturally through uh, Jerusalem. And so that, that meeting of Athens and Jerusalem in our nation is what we're dealing with in, in America. We're dealing with a republic, which is a classical, uh, you know, sort of Greco-Roman idea um, that is founded on a Judeo-Christian notion of the Imago Dei. Um, and, and that means that what holds us together is our conviction of uh, mankind's createdness in the image of God, our belief that you and I, as hu qua human beings, as people, 
um, have a, a certain intrinsic worth, a certain intrinsic merit. Um, and this thing that we're doing called America um, only works if we recognize one another first and foremost um, as Americans, which is to say as people that share those convictions and, and live them out in, in the real world. Um, and that all the other hyphens and, and adjectives that we attach to one another, uh, that we attach to our American-ness are secondary, don't actually get in the way of um, what the Greeks would call philia, political love, political friendship. Um, so that certain kind of rightly ordered love is, I think, first toward God and then toward one's neighbor, right? That's sort of how uh, how, how love is best oriented in the in the Christian tradition. Um, and I think that's that's right. And once you understand this, you realize why identity politics is poison. It's not because like conservatives have some culture war axe to grind. Um, it's because when somebody stands up there and from the highest pulpit or uh, position of power in the land says things like we have a pandemic of the unvaccinated, right? That a certain portion of the population is tantamount to a disease, right? That that tells you that he's actually attempting to undo those ties that bind us fundamentally as Americans. Uh, and, and that's what identity politics does as well. It's a, you know, a neo-Marxist attempt to group and categorize people according to certain uh, demographic features and make them mutually unintelligible to one another. Um, I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist, uh, although perhaps I am becoming a curmudgeon as I, as I grow older. Um, but the reason that I'm neither of those things uh, is because those are both predictions about the future. I don't actually have a prediction to offer you about what's going to happen tomorrow uh, because I don't know, which is both good news and bad news. It literally means good things could happen, bad things can happen. It is possible for things to turn around. What I do know is I have hope, right? That's the better question. Where is your hope? Not what do you think is going to happen tomorrow, but what do you hope for? Where do you invest your hope? And I invest my hope in the philia of the American people and in, in people in face-to-face -face communities as they're doing already still now in a lot of red states and cities, um, getting together to solve human-sized problems. I hope very much that a national political movement will grow out of that. It's capable of winning back the presidency. I care about that a lot. Um, but my hope, my hope is in philia. It's in neighbors and neighborliness. Um, and that's where I'm investing my political energy such as it is. Um, and I, where I think people ought to go because it is the stuff that holds us together. Um, and it's the very thing that they're constantly attacking all the time in every way they can. So uh, when, you know, Joe Biden and the neo-Marxist left are doing their best to destroy something, that's when you know uh, you ought to pay attention to preserving it. So that's that's where I'm uh, putting my political energies. And that's 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 what I argue in the book. I, I love that. I love that vision of looking at neighborhoods and of towns and of communities as these are the places where we foster uh, a the next phase of what what the American experiment looks like. Yep. It's not that the solution is we have to somehow get 365 million Americans or however many there are hmm. uh, all moving in the same direction. So like, no, I need to go talk to my neighbor. Yes, <laughs> you know, that's, right. That's uh, I, it reminds me of um, Edmund Burke's line about the the little platoons are the yep. place where uh, right national affections are first cultivated. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I've thought for years that that schools are the are one of the best places where that kind of local love can really mm -hmm. be cultivated, mm -hmm. uh, and it's it's a local love that builds on top of a rightly oriented family structure. Mm. It's also a local love that can sometimes, to in some ways, uh, make up for corrupted family structures as well. That they mm. and that schools help students see more of what is in their community and form those initial experiences of moving out from the family into a broader world. Yep. Uh, but I love that idea of that, that philia, that rightly oriented political love, that, that friendship uh, is really where we, where we need to be.
it was always supposed to be part of the project. I mean, this is Madison's Federalist 10 talks about the extending the sphere of the country in part so that we can relate to one another in sort of smaller, uh, smaller factions, you might say, um, and that no one mania or conflagration would ever take over the entire country. Now, the, the centralization of our federal power has really corrupted that vision, um, but it's not gone. It's not impossible still to form those communities, as you, as you well know and, and, and live every day. Um, you live this out. And I think that's really crucially important. Um, so one, one feature of this, I think, is you know, useful to draw from uh, classical sources is to understand that the things you're doing already in your daily life um, are not too simple to matter. They actually have a cosmic significance. And they will, in this uh, turbulent, difficult moment, they will also have a, a political significance as well. Excellent. Uh, well, Spencer, as we uh, move towards the close of today's conversation, uh, over the course of How to Save the West, you argue for the existence of God and for what I think is a Burkean conservatism, mm. yet without saying either that everyone should be specifically Christian or vote for a specific party. Uh, to what extent does the Western tradition create a common foundation that allows diverse groups to live and work together peacefully? That's a beautiful question and thank you for calling me uh, a Burke and I, I hope to uh, live up to Burke in, in can, some respects at least we can rant I, I at least will rant and you can tell me why I'm wrong about Leo Strauss another day but but right. I'll, I'll, I'll lump you in with the Burkeans for okay I appreciate that you know I think there there might be some Burkeans who would say I'm, I'm unorthodox on certain points but I, I have an enormous admiration and respect for Burke and as you've indicated much of what he says inspires and informs my, my project here um let me put it this way. I, I, I want to be forthright about my belief that there is a party in this, a political party in this country, um, which says and believes things at, in its leadership that you cannot say and believe and, and still say that you're affirming and upholding the best principles of the West. I mean, the, the, that America is systemically racist, that white people are inherently, I mean, the, these sorts of things um, that we hear now every day from the vanguard of, of the left. I, I don't think that like that's going to be included in the big uh, happy marketplace of ideas that we establish when at last, you know, we, we achieve uh, revival and, and restoration. Um, because there are certain things that, that simply contradict the, the message that I'm saying, the, the vision that I'm putting out there. But at the same time, I do think that it's a spacious message, um, that there is room for an enormous amount of uh, meaningful disagreement within, under the umbrella of the Western tradition, as is in evidence in the Western tradition itself, because, of course, it's not a list of dogma points that you have to believe. It's a, it's a great conversation that I'm inviting you into here with this book. Um, and, and so, yeah, you're not going to come away agreeing with me about every minor question. But in some sense, what, what will happen is we'll be able to have meaningful disagreements. I mean, because that's something that's very lacking from our hyper-partisan politics is disagreements that share a kind of common set of value assumptions. And if you don't have that shared set of value assumptions, you actually can't have a conversation to begin with. You can't, all you can do is scream at one another and demand power, which is a good uh, indicator of why we are where we are in our public discourse. Um, so yeah, I think that the, the West as a concept um, and as a reality, as, a, as an embodied 
historical tradition um, is one of our best hopes for reestablishing things that, you know, if, if you can believe in and agree with these these basic things, um, like that there is absolute truth, like that the body is not a mistake, you know, if you want to live in that reality, um, then we can we actually can all get along like we can we can together uh, build a society and a world and a future in which um, we make these decisions at a local, at a small local level about things like, oh, I don't know, you know, transgender bathroom laws or pick, pick whatever crazy thing, you know, we've been arguing about for the last 10, 20 years. Um, it, it, we can have those conversations in a meaningful way and even have disagreements about the prudential way to uh, live in a plural, pluralist society um, if we uh, understand that we're operating within a tradition, that tradition is valuable, that the wisdom it delivers uh, is not simply uh, an accident or um, something that fell out of the sky, nor is it a, a vestige of some evil oppression. Um, it's actually our treasure and our home. Um, and, and once we're on that page, then yeah, we, we, can, we can actually get along. I've been very intrigued in recent weeks by Jordan Peterson's new project, the mm. uh, ARC Forum in uh, in London. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, he, what he's describing, I think, and what he's trying to build in that is very similar to what you're describing in terms mm. of we have to have a common set of presuppositions for society to flourish. Right. And we have we had a and depending on who you read, people can date this all over the place. But we have had a common societal narrative whether that goes back to 1945 or 1517, or mm -hmm. uh, if you're Richard Weaver sometime in the 1100s. Mm -hmm. uh, but we've had that, but we currently are looking, we're, we're watching a moment where we really don't have that common narrative. And uh, I think one of the, one of my favorite parts about your book was, I, I think this is the, one of the big value point value adds of going back to classical Greece Yep. is that it is so removed from our day-to-day. -day. There are no traffic laws. There is no <laughs> pollution to speak of, except for the same cow farts that still exist. Uh, there, there are no surgical possibilities that could radically alter the body, uh, except for whatever Galen had initially come up with. Like, it's so different than what we look at, but it helps us to see the questions in a, in a more idyllic frame and then come back to answer them in our world today. Mm. Um, so I think what you're what you're describing is desperately needed. Uh, I think we we have to have that sort of common framework. Uh, I'm in increasingly convinced that the projects of classical liberalism are really impossible without a common agreement. Yes, um, Christianity was that common agreement circa 1776, right. and it's not today. Um, <clears throat> today, that common agreement might end up looking more like a broad theism where conservative Christian, biblical Christians, traditional Muslims and uh, tradition and conservative Mormons can all align on basically the same political ends. Mm. Um, but the, the other side that argues for a complete, everything is construction, a complete constructivism like that's, and that, that really takes us back to your initial crisis. I think the, this all comes back down to whether or not reality is real mm -hmm. is it's our responsibility to live in alignment with it. And yeah. if we, if reality is real and we decide that it's not, eventually reality will, as uh, Francis Schaeffer put it, uh, it'll hit us in the face. <laughs> it sure will. Yeah, you will get mugged by it, uh, as as the saying goes. Yeah. Um, and thank you for 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 saying that. I think that's absolutely right. You know, the, there is a golden thread that links us to the past. Um, it's probably coalitionally not going to look the same as it has. Uh, 
you know, in, in years gone by. And that's okay. But we do have to agree to live in, in reality. Um, and it's, there's going to be a theological component to that. Those are kind of non-negotiables, I think. I think you're right about that. Uh, Spencer, How to Save the West, Ancient Wisdom for Modern Crises was an excellent book. Uh, and of course, the, 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 the last question for today is uh, one every author faces. What's what's your next project? Uh, um, this is an exciting question. And uh, there's some stuff in the works that I can't even talk about yet. Uh, but one thing I can talk about is the um, Daily Wire show that I'm working on. Uh, we filmed the first season uh, of the my show, which is about the Western world. It's a further kind of introduction to, but really deep dive into uh, some of these historical periods and, and texts that I write about in the book. Um, and it's on Daily Wire Plus. It'll be coming out soon enough. So uh, that's the big one. Excellent. Well, and like everything with Daily Wire, I'm sure when it's ready, they will be flooding the internet with as many <laughs> ways for people to sign up for Daily Wire Plus membership as possible. You'll hear and, about uh, that's for sure. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, well, uh, Spencer, I want to borrow the last question from one of my other favorite podcasts. Uh, the Christian Humanist Profiles guys always end their show uh, asking their guests if there's anything that they didn't get to talk about. So uh, mm. is there anything we did not talk about today from your book that you would like uh, our listeners to to hear about? Oh, thank you very much for asking that. That's a fun one. Um you know, as you say, there's kind of a lot in this book. I think it all hangs together in the way that you've indicated. One uh, part of the book that we didn't really touch on is the meaning, the crisis of meaning, mm -hmm. um, which is in the middle. It's kind of the hinge of the book. Um, and I'm just going to tease this so that people will hopefully want to go out and, and pick up a copy. Um, it has what I think is a genuinely original take on the culture wars, um, which amounts in some sense to you're both wrong. Um, and if that <laughs> intrigues you, uh, you might want to take a look at the middle section of the book, The Meaning Crisis. Ed, and if I'm remembering correctly... Uh, that was also the place where you you work most with Aristotle's concept of mimesis, and exactly. you sort of get into a literary theory aspect as well. Yes, that's Excellent. that's exactly right. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, well, Spencer, how can people find and follow your work online? Thank you so much for asking. They can go to at Spencer Clavin on Twitter, uh, where for my sins, I tweet. Um, and you can also find the book wherever books are sold. Really, it's on Amazon. Um, it's on Audible as an audio book. I, I did the narration myself. Sometimes I get that question. So if people like to listen, it's, it's, it's there as well. And um, you can also find my writing in the Claremont Review of Books, which is uh, the publication at which I am an editor. So check me out there as well. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Dr. Clavin, for joining me today. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. My guest this episode has been Dr. Spencer Clavin, verbal billionaire, young heretic founder, and heir of the West. <laughs> thank if you like this so episode, please do leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. Until next time, seek the good, discover the true, and love the beautiful. You've been listening to another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. The Optimistic Curmudgeon is a project of Thales Press. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star review and share it with your friends. You can find us on three major social media platforms. Search for The Optimistic Curmudgeon on Facebook and LinkedIn, and find us on Twitter at the handle at TheOptimisticC3. This episode was edited and produced by Madison Kay, audio engineer for The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Until next time, seek the good, pursue the true, and love the beautiful.